listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And you just heard right there, DOA with It's Not Unusual, DOA. And today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, Joe Keithley of DOA. DOA, Joe Keithley's band will be playing their last show ever in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday, January 18th at The Rickshaw, the last DOA show ever at The Rickshaw, next Friday with The Rebel Spell, Rampage, and Fierce Creek. And today, Joe Keithley will be phoning in to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show to talk all about it. So to prepare you listeners for the oncoming DOA onslaught, here's DOA with Chuck Biscuits on vocals. Kill, kill, kill. This is Pop. Do what? 
Don't go fly. Stop wasting my time. I 
And you're still listening to the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, DOA with Woke Up Screaming. And before that, DOA with 13. And before that, DOA with The Enemy. And before that, DOA with Kill, 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 This Is Pop. You'll see the theme, DOA. And today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Joe Keithley of DOA, who are doing their last show ever on January 18th in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada at the Rickshaw Theatre. Coming up now, some more DOA, and in an interview with Joe Keithley from DOA. Here, right now, is World War Three.
And you're still listening to the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. And we have a caller on the line. Hello, caller. Are you there? Yes, I am indeed. Who are you? It's like, uh, what's my line? My line is uh, Joe Keithley, lead singer of DOA. Joe, welcome to the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Yes, thank you very much. It's good to be on the air with you again. Yes, you've been on the radio show, the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, for many years. I think you first appeared, I think even way back in 1987 on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. I think the first time uh, it was out at UBC, obviously at CITR, I got in there and... Uh, um, I didn't know, I wasn't aware of you, right? So <laughs> I had heard of you, I went out and did the show, and I was a little taken aback by your style, uh, but I, I didn't walk out like some others did, right? So. And I preserved that moment actually on a vinyl LP, the Oh God, My Mom's on Channel 10 vinyl LP that I put out that was inspired by the band No Exit, who put out the first punk record, which I'm going to ask you about in yeah. Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Grant from Zulu Records in Vancouver showed me this record, this DIY record. Well, actually, why don't I just ask about that first? I'm talking to you, Joe, from DOA. A lot of people know DOA, but a lot don't know DOA, and even less are going to know DOA now because DOA are coming to an end? Well, I mean, uh, DOA's presence will still be there. Like, I mean, Sudden Death Records is still going. Um, there's stuff on the internet and stuff like that, but uh, well, I'm running for politics, so if I get elected, then uh, uh, if you're going to become MLA and you ask people to uh, vote for you, then you have to be um, devoted to that full-time, so hence uh, DOA will not be uh, touring anymore, uh, shall I be elected. And I believe that I will be elected. And your last show in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada will be next Friday, January 18th yeah. at the rickshaw with the Rebel Spell, Rampage, and Fierce Creep. Who are Fierce Creep? Fierce Creep is uh, Dennis and uh, one other person from um, Real Problems, a pretty good local band. Uh, so it's actually just a, a two-piece, like guitar and drums. So I, uh, they have a pretty... Uh, a pretty guttural style. It's pretty cool. So, Joey, as I was mentioning, DOA put out one of the first punk singles, but not the first punk single out of Vancouver? Or did DOA put out the first punk single out of Vancouver? And who um, put out the first LP? I think it was the band No Exit, and you were kind of mad, weren't you, that No Exit beat you to putting out the first punk record? Well, I wasn't really mad, but I was just like, kind of when I listened to it, I kind of went like, wow, they... It's kind of it sounds like it's recorded in about ten minutes for about ten dollars, right? Type thing, right? Um, not that that doesn't stop it from being the first record. And uh, No Exit was a pretty good band, I, technically. So-so, uh, energy-wise, they're great. And the funny thing about that record, on one side, they they paste their heads on so it looks like the Clash's first album, and on the other side, they paste their heads on so it looks like the the original Damned release, which are two of my all-time favorites. So it was a pretty a pretty good idea on their part. I, I would put it that way, right? It was pretty influential to me because Grant from Zulu Records showed me this DIY record. And I was like, hey, I can make a record. I can do a compilation record. And on my first compilation record, I had a little snippet of that first time I met you live on air, Joe from DOA. Yeah, I, and I remember that. That's pretty funny, right? It was my reaction to, uh, your uh, your handle, right? So it was you and Gerald Ford and Jello Biafra. Well, there, there's some fine company there, right? So all all have uh, either uh, been politicians or have sought political office, right? So 
There you go. That's the one thing that ties Jello, uh, Gerald Ford, and myself together, besides the first Nardware comp. So I guess you kind of already explained it, but this will be kind of the last interview officially as you, Joe, DOA, right? There aren't going to be too many more DOA gigs. Uh, yeah, we're we actually starting a string of um, shows. There's 16 shows. Vancouver's the first one um, that go to, <clears throat> sorry, around B.C., Alberta, and California. And that's like basically the farewell tour. And we did this in um, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes in October. We told people it was the farewell tour. So we did 14 shows out there just a, a couple months ago. Uh, yeah, so it would be the last kick at the can. So if people want to come out, it's uh, Friday the 18th at the rickshaw, as, as you said. And then, uh, uh, you know what? It's one of those things, though, uh, Nardward, that, that people will always uh, want to do interviews for various uh, punk documentaries. I think I've been in about 20 or 25. I can't even remember anymore. You know, just because DOA was always going to places and and uh, a roundabout, roundabout way, a part of a lot of different scenes, right, around North America, right? So it's interesting. So I imagine there are actually more, more interviews, but I'd be spending a lot more time at politics than uh, at music. Joe, speaking of the importance of DOA, how was December 21st? Well, it was sort of like it was really awkward to get anything organized because the, December 21st, of course, people that uh, believed in that sort of thing thought that was the end of the world as the end of the Mayan calendar, you know, that kind of... Uh, uh, no, it's DOA Day in Vancouver. Yeah, exactly. It was also the 10th anniversary DOA Day. So originally, like about eight months ago, I had phoned up Tom and Selmy from the Waldorf, which we all know about what's happening there, which is not great, um, and say we should schedule this DOA Day. And then uh, this whole uh, political thing happened, so I was campaigning all fall, and uh, I end up not organizing anything for the DOA day. So I'll have to get something together in the future. So let's say, just say um, the only thing I did on DOA day was I tweeted, well, it's the 10th annual DOA day and the world has not come to an end. How that, ha- <laughs> that may seem a little lame, but that's what happened, right? How hard is it to get your own day, Joey, of DOA? Like December 21st in Vancouver is DOA day, and you've had it for 10 years. How yeah. hard is it to get your own day? Well, I never suspected we'd get in the first place, but it was really engineered by uh, uh, Jeff Meggs. Uh, he was uh, like an assistant to, uh, um, um, to, to, to Larry Campbell. So, and, and my uh, the late uh, great friend, uh, Jim Green. They were really responsible behind it because they they hated this uh, label of Vancouver being as no fun city. So they kind of thought, okay, what's uh, um, who's Vancouver's sort of, um, I don't know what's the right word, but, uh, you know, one, one of the original rock bands in Vancouver, punk rock bands that, that, that done a lot that was like, you know, wild, unbridled, that kind of thing. So let's get something that's completely counter to this no fun city. Uh, title and called DOA Day. So it was Larry Campbell, Jeff Meggs, and Jim Green that uh, came up with that. Joe of DOA, what was the food like at the legendary Smiling Buddha in Vancouver? You had your stag and stagette party there. Yeah, I did. Um, the kitchen was mostly closed, so I can't. Think, you know, I'm. You know, I don't actually totally remember if the kitchen was ever open while we played there. We started playing there in like. I think the first time I saw a show there was. Um, uh, Ian uh, from uh, of Victorian Pork, uh, he was there. He was, Victorian Pork was playing, right? And this must have been like early 78. And uh, I don't think the kitchen was open then. 
And then Ian got up there. They had one of these little railings around the stage, right, that was about a foot high. They used to put, you wouldn't believe what they used to do, like, in clubs, but this was, like, this stupid little railing they had. So as they were playing, Ian tore the railing off of the um, the stage and chucked it over in the side by the jukebox, right? So, But I don't actually remember eating any food there. Speaking of food, Chuck Biscuits, original DOA drummer, <laughs> yeah. his dream was to get paid in like 500 chocolate bars. What was Chuck Biscuits' obsession with chocolate bars? Uh, he had a lot of uh, obsessions uh, based around sugar, right? Um, you, people have probably seen that videotape of uh, Danzig and the little Chuck segment. He's uh, eating like uh, various types of really super sweet uh, uh, cereal. I don't know if you've seen that, right? But... Um, I don't know about the, I just remember on tour with Chuck, uh, we'd stay with people and sometimes they would offer stuff. One example was, uh, uh, fine homemade lasagna. And Chuck said, forget, he walked to the store and got a can of, uh, Chef Boyardee ravioli. He would prefer to eat that. He grew up in a, a, a real, the Montgomery's were, um, let's say the American junk food family. And I mean that in the nicest of ways, but that's just the way they had grown up, right? Um, I, they were the first Americans I ever met when I met Dimwit, uh, Bob, and uh, Chuck. And uh, they had some strange habits, uh, you know, these Americans. I met them when I was about 10. I heard originally that the Clash and DOA didn't get along, and you can actually see a clip of Randy Rampage talking about the Clash and DOA not necessarily getting along on YouTube, but I also heard perhaps that the Clash said that Chuck Biscuits was the best drummer they ever saw. I don't know if they said that or not. There was like a big beef when we opened for them at the Gardens in uh, 1979, the Gardens of for anybody who wasn't around way back when, uh, was uh, on the P&E grounds, like on uh, on Renfrew Street by the old Coliseum. And um, it's like 3,000 people at the show or something like that. And uh, we got a little bit infuriated with them, and uh, <clears throat> uh, our fans didn't like them that much. And then uh, Mick Jones, I think after, after the show, was quoted as saying uh, uh, that he described DOA as that little uh, heavy metal band, right? But... Uh, nevertheless, I still love The Clash, one of my favorite bands. I had heard that thing about Chuck the drumming thing, but uh, I don't know when that was said or by who. Did you ever hang out with Danzig or Chuck in New York? We, the only time that kind of happened was uh, at the New Music Seminar in 1986. And um, the bill was Danzig, DOA, and I think... Um, Guys from L.A. that read, not Red Hot Chili Peppers, but uh, the kind of psychedelia band. You would know them. They're quite popular. Um, really read? The 3 o'clock? Not really read. Not 3 o'clock. We used to do shows at 3 o'clock and really read. Uh, um, Plastic what's Land? What's that? Plastic Land? No. I, I, no, it will come to me. I'll think of it. Anyway, so, you know, you would know them, like a well-known band. And, uh, you know, but I never really did talk to uh, Glenn particularly, but, you know, the Chuck was hanging out with us, right? So, because we, we didn't really see him a whole lot once he left DOA because he moved down to L.A. So we would see him once in a while. And uh, he used to make T-shirts for us, right? Uh, him and Greg Link. Uh, but uh, I remember one time buying shirts from them for the tour. And uh, the part of their dryer, because a dryer usually goes in three stages or three uh, pieces as you're going drying it. You have to screens on the T-shirt. And uh, they hadn't dried it properly. So they, we're going into the store to sell these T-shirts. 
and Whippy's wearing one of Chuck's T-shirts he'd made for us, and entire one-third of the lettering is just completely washed out, you know, as soon as, like, it, it got in contact with any sweat, right? So, yeah, it was low-quality productions. But you kind of were associated with Rick Rubin and Danzig in a way through Dimwit, your old drummer as well, Chuck's brother. Yeah, the Four Horsemen. Now, did Rick Rubin suggest Dimwit for the Four Horsemen? What was the relationship between Rick Rubin and Dimwit, and how did they all link up? Because I know Chuck was in Danzig. Did Dimwit go down to hang out with Chuck? What yeah, was the? Ru- I, I, that, I don't know exactly how it transpired, but Dimwit was... Dimwit, I mean, Chuck was well-known, absolutely, because he would play in the Circle Jerks, Black Flag, uh, Danzig, and then later on, after what you're t- the time you're talking about, he played in Social Distortion, obviously. Um, so Dimwood, uh, he was out of DOA. They was in DOA tri- twice, quit once, came back. Um, then he was in the Point of Sticks for like a good year and a half, two years, something like that. And then I think at, I don't, can't remember the year exactly, 86 maybe, 87, or whenever Danzig was going with Chuck in it, um, Dimwood moved down to live with Chuck in L.A. So I think that he got the opportunity, and Dimwood's reputation was well known, you know, because of, what he'd done with DOA, right? So, and the, the subhumans as well, of course, right? So, um, so some, I never really figured out how he got into the Four Horsemen. But, you know, the Four Horsemen were okay, but the best part of the band was easily Dimwit at the time I saw them. It's interesting because Dimwit is mentioned in Jesse James, that American Chopper's biography, as getting Jesse James hooking up him with Danzig. In other words, Jesse James became Danzig's bodyguard, and it was saying that Dimwit hooked him up with that gig. Oh, interesting. Okay, I had no idea. Okay, so, um, huh. Well, that's funny. Did well, you... there you go. Then, um... <laughs> Baboom! <laughs> that, that's history, right? Uh, yeah, so. indirectly, you are responsible for quite a bit, aren't you, Joe, from DOA? And again, we're speaking here live to Joe Keithley from DOA, who are doing their last show ever this coming Friday, next Friday, the 18th in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, you, who else have you helped along like that? Yeah, I guess you helped Danzig get some bodyguards. You've helped quite a few people throughout the ages. Didn't you also help the Pointed Sticks get them together? Um, I, no, no, they were going, we played... Uh, I thought you kind of challenged them. You kind of heard them jam and said, you're terrible, why don't you open up for us? That was possible. I mean, I, I think I was pretty free and clear with uh, the insults in those days, so uh, that was a, I didn't hold any opinions back, right? Um, the first show they played with us played at the Quadra Club, uh, which was became later became uh, the Starfish and a few other things in between, right? And uh, on on Homer Street, and um, we did a two night thing there. And that, and that at that stage, that was their first two shows. They were called Ernie Dick and the Point of Sticks. And Ernie was a guy who used to work at um, you know what. He might have worked at Ernie's Hot Wax uh, record store down in the West End. I can't quite remember, right? But um, And it turned out that Ernie wasn't really the singer, and then um, Nick became the singer. But, you know, Nick had been in England, and he had been studying this type of music, and um, he said, you know, uh, he was the, the guy, the right guy at the right time. Well, you know, cause he's a really good songwriter, right? And he teamed up with a really, you know, they were a great band, absolutely. Joe, did you ever meet with Rick Ruman, Rick? Joe, did you ever meet with Rick Rubin at all? Did he help you get your deal with Profile? Uh, no, he was hanging out at this new music seminar. This, it was a big night. It was at Palladium, New York. There's probably, 
don't know, 2,000, 2,500 people at the show. Um, and uh, they got a deal with him, and I guess that was like uh, Def Jam or something like that at the time. And through Profile, maybe. I can't remember, not Profile, but because uh, hey, that's then we ended up on Profile, which was famous because they had the uh, Run DMC, was the, they had sold stacks and stacks of records, right? So, so they had a bunch of money to throw around and a bunch of punk bands. So they signed us and the Nils from Montreal and uh, appeared in the Test Tube Babies and the Cro-Mags. Um, and the guy who did the signing was Chris Williamson, was the guy who ran Studio 54 in New York during its uh, famous period with the Rolling Stones and um, um, Pierre Trudeau's wife, uh, Margaret, right? So, Did you get any offers for majors in the early days of DOA when you were in Vancouver? Did you get any offers to be on major labels way back no, then? No, not really. I mean, that's one of the reasons why well, we wanted to get our music out. We recorded Disco Sucks. We'd only done maybe about 10 shows or something like that, and we got enough money from some EI checks or UI checks, they call them at the time, and recorded the whole thing in about nine hours, including the mixing, and uh, pressed 500 copies and started sending them around. But we never got an offer. The one guy I really tried, I think, would have made a, a big difference. You know, I mean, I mean, DOA did well, but I thought we could could have done better. You know, could have played bigger places and all that kind of thing. But uh, the guy I became friends with was uh, Danny Fields, who's the manager of the Ramones, and used to run 16 Magazine and all sorts of stuff. And... Uh, um, we became friends, but uh, I tried to talk him into managing uh, at DOA, but <clears throat> didn't have time or wouldn't do it or whatever. And then uh, our other effort was to try and get on Sire Records because we thought, well, the Ramones are doing great. Let's try and get on the same label, right? But uh, that didn't happen either. And then, unfortunately, we signed with uh, the profile guys who turned out to be like uh, uh, less than um, upstanding businessmen, shall we say. However, you did release tons and tons of records on your own label, and I guess other labels too. And actually, just wanted to go over some of the records that I played before you came on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show. Sure. And again, we're live here with Joe from DOA, and DOA are playing their last show ever here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday, January 18th at the Rickshaw. Next Friday, January 18th at the Rickshaw with the Rebel Spell, Rampage, and Fierce Creep. It's DOA's last show ever in you Vancouver, British uh, Columbia, tell Canada. Tell the people, or I'll mention it, that uh, they can take a look at SuddenDeath.com because there are a few other shows um, out of town, like in Alberta, B.C., and uh, California for any of your like online listeners, right? So, um, but yeah, go ahead. The records you were going to ask about. Yeah, right off the top, I played. It's not unusual. Oh, I love that version of that. That really rooted in. Uh, um, we were driving around Italy the first time we went there, and uh, this van, and we were having a great time. We had uh, we stopped. Uh, we bought a bunch of bread and cheese and olives and a big bottle of brandy. And uh, at the truck st- the Italian truck stop, I bought a cassette of Tom Jones' greatest hits. And so we had that blasting along the, the, the autostrada in, in northern Italy. And, uh, um, you know, you're talking that's 1984. Then with uh, uh, Ken Jensen, Rest His Soul, and uh, Wimpy and I decided to record that in uh, late 93, and it came out in 94 uh, on a really great label, Alternative Tentacles. And then, and then I played Kill Kill, This Is Pop, featuring Chuck Biscuits yeah. on lead vocals. That's a, great, that's a great one. I think that's an unknown track that you find on the Banker of Complication. And um, that was the two songs we did, I Hate You, 
um, and Kill Kill This Is Pop with Jim Walker, who was the original drummer for the Furies, and then he but he he produced it, sort of produced it in this like, eight track studio, Saber Sound, where Chris Cutters' place. Uh, but Jim at the time had just come back from England. And he did, did uh, two albums with uh, Jaw Wobble and uh, Johnny Rotten, which uh, was known as uh, Pill at the time. Uh, but Chuck singing on Kill Kill This Is Pop. Um, he did the lyrics, and then me and Randy went like, "Well, what are the lyrics?" He says, "Oh, never mind." Never. Like, so we were kind of go. We couldn't really understand what exactly he was saying, but he mumbled his way through it, right? So it's a pretty catchy song. And then I played "The Enemy" because I remember Lars from the band Rancid loved the song "The Enemy," and of course I follow whatever Lars from Rancid says. "The Enemy." Yeah, Lars is a great guy. Uh, I trust his judgment in music too, right? He's a, a terrific band, and he's a really nice person. Um, yeah, the enemy. Uh, well, that's a that we did. A, there's a demo of that that people have never heard. Um, there we were with Bob Rock and Ron Obvious that we recorded at Little Mountain because there's what you're gonna do. World War Three came as a single, but there's an unmixed version of uh, the enemy from that same session, and also from that same session, people have never heard. If I could find it, there's a unmixed version of uh, Rip This Joint, uh, the Rolling Stones classic, uh, I think from um, Lead Bleed or something like that, right? Um, hey, yeah, so that'd be dead. need to dig that out and, uh, and mix that, but I haven't got around to it. So there still are a few little tidbits of unreleased there stuff. There some stuff. I really have to go through it. The problem now is, that, as I'm sure you're well aware and a lot of your listeners, that all this stuff is on so many different formats now because I've got stuff, Masters on Quarter Inch, a few on half-inch tape, uh, stuff on 2-inch uh, 24-track. Uh, I've got stuff on 1-inch 16-track. Uh, I've got ADATs. I've got stuff that's pretty cool that's on cassettes. Um, uh, I've got stuff on uh, beta tapes. That was a really weird thing, the recording device for about two years in the ni- late 80s. You know? uh, so you got to have access to all the stuff to actually go through it. And with me, I've got so much stuff. I'd probably, if I sat down for a month, I could probably come up with a pretty cool comp, uh, like a whole album of stuff that people never heard. Right. So. And then I played 13 because 13 is, well, 2013, and 13 always plays into the DOA equation. 13-year-olds. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I'm one big zero. Don't you get too Nero. I'm one big zero. Uh, yeah, that was the flip side of The Prisoner, um, second single we did. And then the version that you hear on um, <clears throat> Something Better Change, the first album, is different than the single version. Like, uh, same with World War Three, and uh, ooh, a couple of their songs were repeated from the singles. We threw them all in the first album. There are a lot of DOA songs, Joey, from DOA. How right. are you going to figure out what to play in your last gig? Gigs, there are so many. Yeah, we went through the list. Um, we've been practicing. The, the lineup will be uh, for Tom Jones, who... And, um, he's not been with us for a couple years because he's a postman, uh, so he's been posting it for Canada Post. Um, so he's going to be drumming, and Dirty Dan Sedan, who's been with me for about uh, nine years now. Uh, that's the lineup, and then we have a bunch of guests coming up uh, in the encore, you know, uh, ex, ex-members, um, and we're preparing uh, a big encore with a bunch of songs that people would know. But the, basically the set, we took uh, a couple songs from each of the last three albums, uh, a couple from the 90s, and then a whole whack uh, from the 80s, right? From uh, Like from Something Better Change, Hardcore 81, and Warren 45, the first uh, three 12 inches of uh, DOA. 
I played Woke Up Screaming because I love like Woke Up Screaming and Royal Police. I love those vibey ones. I love those ones. Are those included in the Farewell DOA set list? Uh, we haven't rehearsed Royal Police, although that wouldn't be hard because we have recorded that with uh, poor Tom. I'll try and remember that. But Woke Up Screaming, yeah, no, we've got that one. Uh, that, that's maybe my all-time favorite song, right, So of the DOA stuff, right? So Why? Why is that? I don't know because it was totally different. And then uh, we did it, and uh, rather than I, I, to me, that was one of the things I, I, I like about DOA is that uh, not every song had to be fast. Uh, you know, whereas like a lot of times you would hear hardcore bands uh, from that era, or punk hardcore, whatever you want to call it, and every song would be screaming and fast, right? But it's good to switch it up, I think. That, you know, if you do some of the slow songs, it makes the, the, hard, the harder songs after it seem harder. And then I played World War Three, which some people say is the best DOA song, which is four minutes and 26 seconds long. That's a pretty long punk song. Yeah. Is that the single version or the album version? I guess it's the single version. It probably is. It's got all the foot stomps at the end, right? And a big fade out. People used to fade, we used to fade records out because that's what people did back in those days, right? Um, you know, well, we don't know how to end it. Let's do a fade. It's a real classic uh, 60s and 70s technique. Um, yeah, you know what? That's probably close to being the most uh, uh, requested song. Absolutely. It's a good one. Then I played The Prisoner. Yeah, uh, that was really good. Um, I wrote that. Uh, I wrote the music, and uh, my uh, first wife, uh, she wrote the lyrics for it, and I uh, put that together, and that's, yeah, that's a, that's a mainstay. We play that every night, absolutely. And then New Age. New Age, that's a good one. That's uh, one uh, Dave Gregg and I uh, wrote in his kitchen. Uh, it used to be called Fort Gore. It was right if you're coming off the viaduct, uh, heading uh, east uh, towards Pryor, and there were three old houses that used to be there, and uh, they got squatted by punks, and Dave eventually made one of them his house where he lived, and DOA practiced there for eight years. But, uh, yes, me and Dave wrote that song and also General Strikes in his kitchen. And then played Royal Police, and then... General Strike acoustic version. Yeah, that was, uh, I wasn't even thinking of it. Then uh, we talked, the last album, We Come in Peace, just came out. Um, <clears throat> we got Biafra uh, to sing on uh, We Occupy, uh, which was really cool. And then uh, he said, well, you know, Joe, you should really uh, get a version of, uh, some sort of version of General Strike in there. So, so the studio, uh, um, there was an old piano in there. And uh, so we got an acoustic guitar, acoustic bass, and uh, part of a drum set with uh, brushes, and we just uh, r- rattled off an acoustic version of it. Stephen just tweeted in saying, enjoying the interview so far, talking about Dimwit and Chuck Biscuits. And thank you, Stephen, for listening. But actually, it made me think of another question about Danzig. I mean, I guess you can never have enough about Danzig and Chuck, right? And there can never be enough about Danzig and Chuck, right? Uh... Depends who you talk to, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, Joe, I guess what I was wondering is, Misfits fans drool that you played with or you saw the Misfits in 77. Can you please squeeze any little more ounce of what you've said about that gig out to the listeners? Uh, like you saw yeah, Misfits? Yeah, it was, uh, we were the head of a band called The Skulls. We had emigrated to Toronto from Vancouver. lived there for about four months. Uh, uh, and... Um, so there was this place called the Shock Theater, which was very short-lived uh, in Toronto, but it was a pretty cool place. To, you know, I saw the Ugly there and the Vile Tones and stuff like that, right? Um, 
And so we played, we were the opening band uh, for the Misfits, and that maybe 30 people showed up, and uh, uh, they had their set list on stage. And um, I, I ended up ripping up the set list, right, and making fun of it. I didn't even think it was their set list. And the, I think it was the drummer, I can't remember, that he was furious. He wanted to, he wanted to bust my face open, I think. So, so I think that was his intent, uh, uh, I guess he'd written the set list and I'd ripped it up, so he's pretty mad, so whatever, right? Uh, you know, but personally, you know, I, 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 Misfits are okay. I was just never a fan. I, didn't, I never really got it, right? So, Were DOA ever offered to be in anything like Erg, A Music War? Uh, oh, that's a film, right? Yeah. No. Who's in it? I, can, I haven't heard that in the 80s. It has, like, the Dead Kennedys in it. It oh, okay. has the yeah, cramps you know, in it. A lot of that stuff would happen if you're in California. Or, like, it, you know, sometimes Americans overlook what happened in Canada, even though it's, like, a big influence. And, you know, a lot of great bands came out of Canada, right? So, I mean, take a look at the film American Hardcore. The, the only band in, same band in there is DOA, right? So. What do you remember turning down that you kind of wish you didn't turn down? I always remember the band Pluto from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, turned down a chance to be in a commercial with Don Ho because they didn't want to be a sellout and be in a commercial with Don Ho. But the band Huevos Rancheros said, hell, we'll be in a commercial with Don Ho. And then afterwards, Pluto were like, damn, we should have been in that commercial with Don Ho. We could have got paid and been in a commercial with Don Ho. Yeah, I think that's an opportunity to want to miss a classic like Don Ho, right? It's like... Uh... Anybody doesn't know him, he's the classic Hawaiian singer, Tiny Bubbles, and a bunch of other hits, right? And uh, um, the one I wish had to happen, but it didn't because it fell apart. A guy approached us in Portland, and what he uh, he managed uh, Sam the Sham, you know, Wooly Bully, Wooly Bully, that kind of thing, right? And a bunch of really great garage hits. So uh, he saw us play, and he went, well, Sam the Sham wants to get back on the road. He didn't have a band. So he says, how about DOA be the band, and uh, Sam will come up and, sing, come up and sing, and uh, he'll give you guys 100 bucks a night or something like that. And we went, sure, sounds great, because you know, you're know you talking this like 1979 or something like that. So that's something that I thought would have been a total riot, I, although I'd never met the guy, so who knows, maybe it would have been a total nightmare. Oh, damn, that yeah, could have been really exciting. Yeah, that would really cool to get a recording of that, right? You know, but uh, hey, it never happened. Um, other stuff like that. Well, the one I wish we had a jam was uh, us and uh, Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols jamming in uh, New York at about 3 or 4 in the morning. Uh, Jack Rabbit, the guy who runs a big takeover, uh, he was there, and that was great. I'm not so sure, but whatever. It was a jam anyways, right? So I was a big fan of Steve Jones, uh, uh, you know, one of the greatest bands of all time and one of the greatest guitar players. And we're speaking here to Joe Keithley from DOA, and DOA are doing their last gig ever in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday, January 18th at the Rickshaw. That's next Friday, January 18th at the Rickshaw with the Rebel Spell, Rampage! Rampage! The Randy Ramp- Rampage Band and Fierce Creep. Yeah, yeah, Rampage is a new band. It's, uh, uh, they had a band before, it's called 22nd Century, like Zippy's the drummer, Dwayne uh, Nichols, the guitar player, and I'm, I'm not sure what bass player, but now they have this new band, it's called Rampage, and obviously, uh, the fabulous Randy Rampage is the the singer and uh, you know front man of the band. So I'm curious to see it. Um, I'm hoping we're going to record it. Uh, you know, maybe we can do a live album of it. it. Could be like a, a good good thing. 
Joe of DOA, how many final gigs have you done as DOA? Who has been in the band at those final gigs? And will your final, final gig really be at Wild Bill's in Banff? Uh, yes, Wild Bill's the last scheduled show. And um, like I said, that's on February 24th. And uh, after that, it's all politics uh, for, the, for me and the NDP and BC. Um, so the final show is the only time we did a, we did a, a farewell tour down the coast um, in the fall of 1990. Um, and it was an unusual road crew because John Wright from No Means No was the roadie and Chai Pig of uh, SNFU fame was the merchandiser. Um, and uh, there's a live tape of that called The End, produced by the, the ever-great, uh, well, he's not alive anymore, but the good pal of ours, Dirk Dirksen from the Mabuhe. Um, you can see that lineup. So that lineup was Chris Prohome on guitar, myself on guitar, um, Wimpy on bass, and John Card on drums. And I mention all those guys because that, that tour was about 10 shows long, and then December 1st, 1990, we did uh, uh, the farewell show at the Commodore. And um, it was packed beyond belief. Uh, so Drew Burns, uh, another pal of mine, uh, who ran the Commodore, said, how about another show? So it, that was the only other, only two times we did another show, final show. So December 1st and December 13th, both in uh, 1990. But we'd, and the tour. So, But we'd never done any farewell or final shows uh before or since then. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? I sure am, Nardwar. Go ahead to Joe from DOA. I also am enjoying the interview. I would like to ask Joe if he still at, uh, rehearses at Charts Music in Burnaby, <laughs> and if he doesn't, I would just like to know how his experience at Charts Music was. Uh, uh, Charts is great. Uh, fine bunch of guys that run it, and uh, fair rates, it's uh, right near Royal Oak and Kingsway in uh, in Burnaby, fabulous Burnaby. Uh, yeah, no, we still rehearse at Charts. It's a great place, right? So. When did you first hear of DOA Caller? What's that? Caller, are you still there? <laughs> Hello, call. The caller just phoned in for the plug and didn't hang around for a little extra little juicy part. I think it was somebody from Charts. Uh, well, okay, Caller. Well, I was just curious when you first heard of Joey from DOA. But Joey from DOA, you're here live on the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show. And actually, if anybody has any other questions for Joey from DOA, it's 604-822-2487, 604-822-CITR, 604-UBC-CITR, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for Joey from DOA, or you can also tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. But Joey, for last gigs, though, you've done last gigs, like you did one at the University of British Columbia, Canada, the sub ballroom. You did a gig. You didn't think it would be your last gig. How uh, many gigs? Yeah, no, you're right about that. How many gigs have you done that you didn't think would be your last gig, but kind of were your last gig for a while? Well, I wouldn't even really call that one a last gig because what happened, it was like, I think in December 79 or late November, and. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it, 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 the whole thing would develop into a Donnybrook uh, slash riot. Um, you know, a bunch of stuff got wrecked at the sub ballroom there in UBC. And so Chuck quit, um, and um, Randy was out. And uh, so then we had a short-lived attempt, but not very long afterwards, because we were in the middle of recording the first album. I think we were back up doing shows by late January, early February with... Uh, Simon Wilde on bass, Andy Graffiti on drums, and uh, Dave Gregg uh, on uh, guitar. Um, 
So I, I really wouldn't call that a final show, but the, the original lineup did break up there. So that's one. Sure. Kind of. Now, you will be having some special guests up here. Perhaps yep. Chuck Biscuits might show up. Perhaps Gene Kaninsky. Oh, he can't show up, can he? Uh, Gene Kaninsky. Gene Kaninsky, uh, world cha- world's, uh, Canada's greatest athlete. Because um, actually we have a tweet question from Reed, and he was wondering about Terminal City Ricochet and the albums that you did with Jello and No Means No. You know, the Terminal City Ricochet, Jello, No Means No connection Reed yeah. was wondering about. Because Gene Kaninsky, for people who don't know, he was part of DOA kind of, right? Canada's greatest athlete? Yeah, Gene was a top-notch wrestler. Like, I watched him all the time when I was a kid on uh, um, uh, Channel 8 Wrestling, whatever they shot out at BCTV, now uh, Global in Burnaby, and uh, every Saturday afternoon, and Gene was the champion of the circuit, right? And uh, so later on, um, right, Terminal City Ricochet. So in this movie, it's a futuristic world, um, Peter Breck from the Big Valley is the, the mayor boss, kind of, uh, you know, the sort of uh, Mitt Romney-type guy running the slick politician running the, the town. And uh, so, but the head of the secret police is Jello, and then his uh, brutal uh, police enforcers are me and the, the wrestler, Gene Kanitsky. Um, and we're known as Officer Friendly and Officer Good Buddy. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> yes, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So that uh, connection came... About from that, so we recorded one song for the film called uh, That's Progress, right, which is a really great song, I think. And um, we did that, and DOA did a, a few other things. We actually recorded uh, um, Won't Get Fooled Again by, by The Who, which was supposed to be in the film, but it turned out the sync rights were like, way too expensive for the, even with DOA recording for the film budget. Anyway, so what the song went so well, we talked to Jello and said, well, why don't you come up and do some more songs? So we, that, we kept. That's progress, obviously, and then uh, did five more, and that became the album "The Last Scream of the Missing Neighbors," which is uh, easily one of my favorites, right? And "No Means No" were on the soundtrack to that. Uh, the soundtrack was put together by our old manager uh, Ken Luster, and uh, so you got "No Means No" in there. And uh, what's his first name? But last name is John. Who's on that? And uh, Michael from. Uh, Oh, Christ, you know the record here. Uh, um, he's really well known. He's still there in Nordway? Michael Turner? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he, him and, uh, oh, it's a, it's a really great soundtrack if you ever hear the Terminal Stage soundtrack record, right? So, anyway, so, and um, then shortly after that, uh, Jello did the, the album with, uh, no, he's no, with The Sky is Falling and I Want My Mummy, I think it's called. Something like that. And Joey, you are DOA, you are Vancouver history, but if people want some other Vancouver history of the punk persuasion, they can pick up, aside from speaking to you or going to your last shows, they can pick up the Bloody But Unbowed DVD, a great encapsulation of Vancouver punk rock, named, of course, after a DOA song, which actually makes another appearance, the Bloody But Unbowed song or title on your new CD that's just brand brand new out. On the Bloody But Unbowed DVD, there's some bonus footage. Did you see the bonus footage on the Bloody But Unbowed DVD? It has an interview with you from DOA at O'Hara's, just like after a Vancouver Complication gig? Uh, no, I haven't seen that. Um, I do have a copy of the DVD here. Um, I didn't see that, but I, the O'Hara's, we played there twice. It was, um, that was how we financed the, 
1979 Banker Complication compilation with all the original bands from that era. It's great, great, great comp. I haven't seen uh, the interview. Yeah, people got to check out the DVD. Yeah, and- it's it's really good. Uh, um, Suzanne Tabata did the film, um, and she did a great job. Got everybody in there from the the old days, you know, from uh, Jim Brain Eater to uh, uh, the Point of Sticks to DOA, the Subhumans. Uh, you know, it's like um, Art Bergman, uh, Modernettes. You know, it's just some really great footage there. It was a great scene. So on the bonus features, there's that interview with you guys in DOA at O'Hara's after you played the benefit gig for the Vancouver Complication Record, which you reissued on Sudden Death Records. And there's this English lady doing the interview. Who is this English lady doing the interview? Do you have any recollection of who the English lady was that was doing the interview? No. Uh, if I saw the footage, I might. But no, I no, I had no idea at all, right? So, because she said to you, "Why are you so biased, Joe Keithley, about the other groups? Is anyone better than DOA?" <laughs> and you replied, "Did I say no? Absolutely not. You okay. were you were quite competitive back then, Joe. Or have you always been quite competitive? Or have I forgotten how competitive DOA were? Uh, we're competitive. I mean, that probably came of." Uh... Um, I played an awful lot of sports when I was a kid. Played a lot of lacrosse and a lot of hockey, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, they, we were competitive, right? There's no doubt about it, right? So, I think that compilation uh, uh, benefit show you're talking about there was the only time that the subhumans of DOA ever played together because we couldn't agree on who should close the show, and we had each had a manager. Um, they had David Spanner, who's a good buddy of mine. Um, used to write for the province movie reviews and uh, among other stuff, and Ken Luster. And um, they were also good friends. So it was a bit of a rivalry between the two managers and the two bands. So that was, it's pretty interesting, though. So, yeah, that, maybe that's what you do when you're young. Well, in that interview, you also joked by saying, Have you read my books? Uh, did I? Okay. But yeah, little I did you know before. that you will you would have written books. Now you've written because I think you said, "Have you read my two books?" And now you've actually written two books. I have written two books. I should had in uh, um, kind of a short autobiography, twelve year period, and uh, about the first part of DOA, and then um, talk my action equals zero, which has been like kind of a pictorial story poster history just came out. And they're also going, it's a real fascinating interview, they also go on about saying how Bomp Records had pre-ordered 1,000 copies of the Vancouver compilation, but you're like, nah, who cares, that's no big deal, Bomp Records owes me 300 bucks! Those guys were crooks, right, so I wouldn't give them the money, right? <laughs> we had to sit on the guy's desk to collect 60 bucks to get enough gas money, uh, this is Bomp Records in L.A., uh, to get enough gas money to get to Texas, right, so from L.A., so you employed that tactic. Had any other bands done that? And did he know that you were coming to get him? Uh, we just showed up at his office. He wouldn't send me the money. I'd send him all a bunch of, I guess, 60 Disco Sucks singles because we used to sell them for a buck, right? And uh, uh, we played in SF, and the next show was in Austin. And then uh, uh, so we diverted by L.A. and stopped at his office. And uh, we just basically marched in there and said, we're going to sit on your desk so you come up to the come up with the 60 bucks, right? So. And 60 bucks back then, that was a lot of gas money, wasn't it? 60 bucks? How well, did that power you? Guess, it was nothing against the Texas, believe it or not. It would only get you like a tenth of the way now if you're lucky, right? So, um, I mean, you got to think that gasoline was probably like, um, down in the States, probably like 45 cents a gallon or something like that. 
And we're speaking here to Joe from DOA, and Joe Keithley of DOA, and DOA are playing their last gig ever in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday night, the 18th, at the rickshaw here in Vancouver with the Rebel Spell, Rampage, Rampage and, 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 and Fierce Creep. Fierce Creep, yes. And Fierce Creep. And Joe, DOA, you also talked about playing gigs with Tom Robinson. Did you do gigs with Tom Robinson? No, um, I did not. I was, I'm a big fan of Tom Robinson. Anybody not familiar with Tom Robinson, he was a, a great uh, advocate of um, uh, gay rights. And uh, his, I don't know all his material, but it had one fantastic double album that had uh, Power in the Darkness. And um, it's just a great rock record. It wasn't quite punk rock, but it was, you know, in the same era. And uh, they had drawn a lot of attention because they played these rallies with, with these... Uh, fascists in uh, London were trying to beat the crap out of them because they were gay, right? And uh, But uh, they played the Commodore one night, and um, um, I, I had this old football jacket. It was number 27 on the side, and um, which I, I can't quite remember how this works, but it was some sort of sign about being gay or something like that, right? And um, so I, I went down to introduce myself and say, Tom, Here's a jacket, maybe you want it, type thing. It was just a scrubby old football jacket. And, it, you know, I told him who I was, and we gave him a DOA single, I think, and then he gave me this really cool uh, English uh, motorcycle jacket. A, really, a terrific guy. I've never met him before or since, right? But great artist, some great records. What happened to the jacket? I think it eventually disintegrated, like about pre like pre well everything I owned in those days, right, including my guitars and cars. And, um, I, so no idea. I wonder that myself. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? I am here. Go ahead to Joey from DOA. Mr. Shithead, i uh looking forward to the final show. Wish okay, you the best. So much. Uh, any chance of uh, Mr. Chuck Biscuit's going to be showing up as a special guest? Well, we have uh, special guests are coming, uh, special secret guests, so I can't really speak to that. Fair enough. I'll be well, there anyway, be Joe. It's supposed to be a surprise guest. Caller, have you ever seen DOA with Chuck Biscuits? No, I haven't. I, I, I missed around. I wasn't around in those days. Have you ever seen Chuck Biscuits drum live? No, sir. That's what I'm hoping for. What's the closest you've got to seeing Chuck Biscuits drum? <sighs> Probably some poor band who was ripping off dancing at some point. All right. Well, thanks so much, caller, yeah. and doot doot loot do. Doot doodly do. Thank uh, you, Nordwar. Uh, almost, caller. Doot doot loot do. A doot doot. All right. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, live here with Joe from DOA. You've played a few riots. You've played, like, riots in L.A., but you also played, like, I think, a Seattle half-riot at the Lincoln Arts Center. Do you remember that at all? DOA playing a half-riot in Seattle? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't really remember where the Lincoln Arts Center was, right, but I remember it was packed. There was about 400 kids there. And uh, um, what happened, I think, is that um, the, police, the fire department came close to show down because it was either over capacity or they didn't have a proper, um, like, permit for the, the building, you know. And it always just shows have always been notoriously tough in Seattle. Uh, the city council there, uh, you know, as far as that goes, that usually has their head up their collective arses, right? So, um, so the police came and closed it down. But as all these cops were there, somebody had a can of spray paint and went and tagged the, the back end of three uh, Seattle cruisers with uh, DOA on it, right? I, I don't know where the picture is, but I've got a picture somewhere of that, right? So, But we figured they were going to arrest us and make us work in the police uh, 
uh, paint shop and uh, clean it off, right? So. And in another time in Seattle, you slept with the Melvins. You slept with the Melvins, or you tried to sleep with the Melvins? Well, it depends that people don't want to take that the right way. I was in Atlanta, and there was like, um, they were sleeping on the stage at the club. We got there at 7 in the morning, and the club was like filthy and disgusting, and um, the, the squad of building across the street was inhabited by about a dozen skinheads, right? And uh, um, we ended up actually going to a motel at John Card's suggestion because there was actually nowhere to sleep because they were sleeping on the drum riser and the stage and stuff like that. So That's you were thing I know about that. You were thinking the same thing about sleeping with the Melvins. Did it also happen in Seattle too? You tried to sleep with the Melvins. Did you sleep in a lot of clubs? Uh, sometimes you'd end up like on the stage, right? Um, or you know, maybe end up uh, outdoors sometimes, right? So it was usually a prerequisite to uh, take a sleeping bag with you, right? Um, you know, in fact, those that didn't would usually end up freezing somewhere, right? So. It's a smart idea to be prepared. Um, trying to think, all right. Crocs and Rolls in Thunder Bay would be one. You know, they used to let the uh, band stay like on the couches and the chairs and on the floor all the time, right? So, and of course, in Europe, Europe, yeah, a little bit different though, because in a lot of the places would be squats, right? You know, and for people not familiar, a, a squat uh, would be an unused building that people got in, changed the lock, uh, got the power going. And there's some rights over in Europe. There aren't here uh, in North America, but um, to get people, a lot of people live uh, because of a, a large amount of absentee landlordism there, right, and people unused buildings. So, yeah, they would usually have, like, a sleeping room, you know, not necessarily on the stage, right? So, Caller, are you there? Yes. Go ahead to Joe from DOA. Hello, caller. Okay, they've gone away. Hello, caller. Oh, I guess it's Joe and Joe, you were the caller. Yes, Joe, you're still the caller. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Caller, if you want to phone back, it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. And who are we speaking to? Well, Joe from DOA, Joe Keithley from DOA, who are doing their last show ever in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday, January 18th at the Rickshaw in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. You can also tweet if you have any questions for Joe. And the tweet is at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. Joe, knocking on 2,000 doors? You've knocked on 2,000 doors? Please explain. You've kind of had hints to this. I didn't actually pursue you after saying these little hints, but now I'm pursuing you. You've knocked on many doors, and you've mentioned politics. What's going on? 2,000 doors you've knocked on. Have there been any punks behind the doors? And what's going on? Um, yeah, it, it, during the fall... Um uh, because I'm vying to, I don't have the nomination yet. There's three other candidates. There's four of us trying to get the nomination for the writing of uh, Coquitlam, Burke Mountain, um, which is kind of like the Coquitlam Mall, Westwood Plateau area, right? Uh, anyways, um, to, in order to sign up people, we, uh, uh, all the candidates would use various um, uh, methods to sign up people. My method was to go and knock on people's doors and uh, go, Hello, my name is Joe Keithley. I'm running for the NDP in Coquitlam, Burke Mountain. Um, and I would, I would basically uh, talk to a lot of people, and I, I really signed up a lot of people, right? Uh, you know, I would ask them for like five minutes of their time, and I would explain what I, I stood for and uh, what I believed in and why I was running. And uh, people were, were really, really receptive, actually. And um, a lot of people knew me from the band. Uh, they weren't necessarily fans of the band, but they knew of DOA, right? And we've been around so long. 
And, uh, yeah, it, it worked very well, right? So I did end up signing a lot of people. And so the next step is to get those people out to our uh, nomination meeting, which is uh, March 3rd. And then uh, if I get enough people out, then I will be the nominee. So you were asking them to sign something. Did they ask you to sign anything? Did anybody run down into the basement and get their rare DOA collectible for you to sign or for you to buy back to sell? Uh, nobody wanted to sell it back, but a few people did go for autographs. Absolutely, right? Or, you know, a lot of times I'd uh, go back a second time because, you know, if they, if they seemed a little bit receptive, uh, but they wouldn't sign up, you know, I'd go back and, uh, you know, not to bother them too much, but just see if they, uh, you know, and if they listened a second time, often they, often they would sign up. So, yes, there were people who uh, were, you know, got autographs signed and stuff like that. And a lot of people who had seen DOA. Um, so, you know, we have played a lot of shows in this town, that's for sure, right? So, you know. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead, Naked Poet, to Joey from DOA. O-M-G-D-O-A, what's up? And, um, well, I'm just, holy, happy 420. And I want to know if you're going to legalize pot. Uh, you know what, um, I think pot should be legalized, but I think the first step is really is to... Uh, okay, forget about that question. What are you wearing? Um, clothes. Um, <laughs> do you have it? Clothes. clothes. Uh, yes, no, I think, hey, to answer your first question, uh, the first step is get uh, marijuana decriminalized, but the, the, uh, big, the big thing... Well, is- I got some right now, man. I got six spliffs stuck to my lips and... Talking to um, Narjor, and he's really the shit. Well, or, uh, thank you. I guess it's a compliment, or should I say you're dope? <laughs> well, thank you, Naked Poet, for phoning in yet again. And uh, well, yes, I gotta say, Narjor, you're not a puppet like Guts McTavish, right? Baboom. Naked Poet! All right! Thank you so much, Naked Poet, on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. Joe, politics, green, NDP, Jello Biafra. What did Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys, who you have on your new CD, think of you switching from green to NDP? Uh, he was okay with that. Um, they didn't really say one way or the other. I mean, uh, it's... I mean, to me, here, here's the deal, right, uh, that uh, the Green Party, um, while having a good environmental policy, they do not have a, a coherent fiscal policy, and they have a poor track, track record on social activism, on social justice. They don't know what they're doing with that either. And at the same time, the Green Party is a vote splitter, and the Green Party will never win. Uh, so if we are sick of the B.C. Liberals here, uh, which is basically an extension of the Conservative Party in Ottawa, then uh, people should go out and vote for the NDP. It's the only way we're going to uh, end this uh, reign of error by uh, Christy Clark and the B.C. Liberals. And winding up here with Joe Keithley from DOA. And again, DOA are playing their last gig ever next Friday, January 18th, at the Rickshaw here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We actually have a tweet question for you from Kieran, and he wonders, I heard once that Jesse Gander from DBS was Joey's son. Is that true? No, it's not true, but uh, about the right age, uh, uh, DBS were on the label, um, 
uh, with the album is called I is for Insignificant. Pretty good album. Came out in uh, 98. And then we took uh, DBS to Europe with us uh, on a tour for about 30 shows. Yeah, good band. Uh, and then people that don't know, uh, Jesse, I guess he still runs the Beehive Studios. The Hive, yes. The Hive, yes. Yeah, yeah Jesse's a good guy. But uh, he, no, he's not my son. And Joey, coming up to end an Ardware to Human Serviette radio show, going to play We Occupy. I guess I mentioned before it has Jello on vocals. Yeah. What is involved in getting Jello to do vocals on a song? Like, does he like to approve the lyrics? Does he have suggestions on the music? Does he like ska? Uh, please explain Jello. Uh, well, if he doesn't like it, he won't do it. Okay. Um, we're old friends. So I told him what the, what the track was about and then uh, what we did. Uh, we sent the stems, which are the basic tracks, um, <clears throat> you know, like a you send it file. So they downloaded at the studio in San Francisco uh, and then uh, sent the lyrics. And uh, he sang a bunch of different versions of it. Um, I think we actually had 61 tracks of him singing various little bits and pieces of that song. And we put together the, the one we liked, right? So He did 61 takes? Well, not entire takes, but 61 sections that we have, right? So uh, Sean uh, Holloway Chuck from Profile edited that together into one track, right? Um, and uh, and then he got me to sing on um, his new song, which is called uh, Shocky Pie. So uh, consequently, uh, his studio guy um, sent the stems up here to Profile, and then I went on the head lyrics and I did a whole bunch of different vocals and. I just told him, pick out the ones you like and uh, use what you like and get rid of the rest or whatever, right? So, um, And that's on the new 10-inch EP uh, from uh, Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, as is uh, We Occupy is on that as well. So you've put out many records on your own Sudden Death record label, but you've also been a judge. Were you really the judge for the Hockey Night in Canada theme song? I, I was, but what happened, I got a bunch of tracks to listen to, which were mostly like pure crap. And um, it, it, then I ended up going on tour, and then I ended up not in the final judging uh, um, process, right? I, like, I originally, because they had tons and tons of tracks. Remember how well publicized that was? So I think I listened to about 10 or 15 all, which were, I thought were horrible, right? And... Uh, but I really didn't have any influence on the final outcome, but I was originally one of the judges, but then I had to go out of town. What's it like playing Salt Spring Island in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada? I'll never forget that you played Salt Spring Island with Fishbone, DOA, and Fishbone on Salt Spring Island. Could you explain how amazing that is for people that maybe don't know what I'm talking about? Right. No, I don't think we ever played there with Fishbone. We did a whole tour with Fishbone, about 30 shows in 2002. Um... As far as I know, this is the only island we played in the Gulf uh, before is uh, Denman Island. That was like in uh, 1988 or 89. Um, anyways, I think the Gulf Islands are really cool. We're actually um, here for your listeners. We're on Friday, um, the 25th of January. We're actually playing on Laskiti Island, which is really tiny. There's only a foot ferry, that, like a walk-on ferry, no cars, that goes over there. And the last one's at 4.30, so if you want to see the show, this is for any of the kids up in uh, Parksville and Nanaimo. That's where Laskiti is, right? And you can find all that info on uh, SuddenDeath.com. And then on Saturday, the 26th, they're playing on Salt Spring. So um, it'll be interesting. I'm the opening act, playing acoustically. And then uh, DOA comes on and uh, plays uh, punk rock. Joe of DOA, 
playing your last gig ever as DOA in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, next Friday, January 18th at the rickshaw. I always wondered about this. Bob Rock, Loverboy, DOA. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I haven't got a particular answer that I really am looking for here. Loverboy have a song called DOA. You have a song called DOA. Bob Rock recorded you. Bob Rock recorded Loverboy. Is it true that when you showed up to the studio in one studio, was Loverboy recording the song DOA, and in another studio was DOA recording the song DOA, all done by Bob Rock? I... I've forgotten that Loverboy had that song. I can't even think what it goes like. It goes um, like, D.O.A. Wow. And, uh, hey, well, you know, it's like, uh, um, really not much to do with it other than the Bob Rock connection. So, I, no, I don't, you're probably still unsatisfied with this answer because I can't, I can't really connect the two other than the fact that we both worked at Bob Rock and it was both that uh, Low Mountain Sound. But I guess Jay Z has a song DOA as well. And, yeah, and uh, and there's know, there's that movie DOA. I guess you've had quite a bit of DOA well, confusion over the uh, years. The Foo Fighters have one as well, don't they? Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, uh, you know, but uh, the the problem is is that all the competition, their version wasn't as good as the one I wrote. <laughs> Baboom! Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And lastly, lastly here, <laughs> Joey of DOA. I have to ask you about this too. Anti Nowhere League and the Bucket of Chicken. Two different I don't stories. About the Bucket of Chicken, we saw it, we played the with the Anti Nowhere League in London at the Lyceum. It was a big show. We opened Anti Nowhere League in the middle, then uh, um, Dead Candies, which were the big draw. This was about 1981. Yeah, and um, uh, these English Hell's Angels were going to beat the crap out of us because we thought we talked funny and uh, they didn't like us and we didn't look like English punks and. Uh, all of a sudden, East Bay Ray from Dead Kennedys came along and uh, stuck his head in the dressing room, saw what was happening, and said, uh, oh, it's, it's okay, don't bother these guys, it's all right, they're just Canadians. And uh, the Angels uh, went away and then didn't beat us up, so that was fortunate, right? Um, but the, the Anti-Nowhere League... Ah, uh, hold on, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, I was, you're, you're finishing up the story, sorry. No, no, but the Anti-Nowhere League came to Vancouver uh, to play at the Commodore, and I was telling everybody, like, I've seen these guys, and they're complete crop, so come on down and see how crappy they are type thing, right? And, um, but what happened, Animal, the singer, uh, OD'd or something like that, and as we arrived at the Commodore, the St. John's Ambulance was there to carry Animal down the stairs and revive him. And that was the curse of DOA, right? Yeah, I don't know what it was, but I don't remember anything about the bucket of chicken. The bucket of chicken, you and Ken Lester, wasn't it driving another time? It's another story. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's mixed up. Yeah, he would... uh... And that that comes back, actually, to the first time I ever heard you or met you, because you were telling the bucket of chicken story to Bill Baker from the radio show Expo 66 Mint Records in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I kind of barged in on the interview, but that's how I remember the first time actually talking to you, was the bucket of chicken thing that Bill had kind of opened up that story yes ken uh, really quickly i know uh, uh time but uh ken came on tour with us and hitched a free ride between uh, chicago and new york he was just a, a journalist for the straight so to make him pay for it uh he'd buy an entire bucket of chicken give us one piece each and then he'd eat about 14 or 15 type thing so to pay him back later on after he was the manager he asked me to go get him some chicken at a kfc at uh, fraser and uh, broadway area and uh so when I was in the restaurant, I took each piece of chicken and took a huge bite out of each piece and then put it back down, so bite uh, down in the box type thing. And he started eating the chicken as I was driving along. I go, here's your chicken, man. 
And uh, they went, hey, there's an effing bite out of this one. Went, there's a bite out of this one, too, right? And finally, by about the fourth piece, I couldn't contain my laughing, right? So he, that was revenge of the KFC. Well, thanks so much for phoning into yeah. the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio yeah. Show, Joe Keithley from DOA, next Friday, January 18th, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, thank you, Nardwire. You've uh, done a great job over the years in the, uh, promoting stuff and uh, opening up people's eyes to uh, obscure culture and cool culture. And uh, uh, carry on, my friend. Carry on. Well, thanks. Anything else you want to add to the people out there? Why should people care about DOA, Joe Keithley? Why should people care? Uh, I think DOA is just one of those bands that's made a difference over the years, right? And it's uh, kind of been our modus operandi and... Um, uh, yeah, and, and it's a lot of fun, too. Well, thanks so much, Joey. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. Do-do. Get robbed, gotta kick their ass, cause enough is enough! 
Yeah. 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 Yeah.